a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your freaky hosts, Pat Mitchell. Joining me on this freaky expedition is freaky Adam Walker. I am a freak. There he is. Freak incarnate. Freak me. Freak me, thrill me, seek me. We're talking about 1932's uh, Freaks Tonight, which I'm very excited about, directed by Todd Browning. Um, But before we get into the movie itself, shall we play uh, a little Stump the Chump? It is that time, isn't it? It's that time again. I feel like this one's pretty easy, but... You know, I don't want to set you up for failure here by making it sound easy. Don't um, worry. I set myself up for failure every day. So this will be no different. Tell me when you're ready. I'm ready. One minute on the clock to guess the actor based on his filmography and start. Beverly Hills Cop 2, 1987. New Jack City. Uh, no. New Jack City, 1991. CB4, uh, 1993. Chris Rock. Yes. What a, what a record time. 15 seconds. Was, was that, um, were you trying to be in keeping with current events? Not at all. No. But I just thought he'd be a fun one. So, so yeah. He's a fun. You got it, buddy. He's a fun man. Thank you very much. Um, I actually didn't know, or I'm completely lapsing as to who he is in Beverly Hills Cop. And I love that movie. Second one. He's in the second one. Second one. Thank you. That's what you did say. That makes sense. I haven't seen that one in a while. Um, it just says he's the Playboy Mansion va- valet, so it's probably just okay. a cameo. Yeah, he's just... 
It's like his first one of his first movies, uh, 1987. He was in something called Crush Groove from 1985 in an uncredited role. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, one of one of those. But you're back in the back in the plus. uh, You're three and two now on the season. So you're have you have a winning record for the first time uh, in season three. That feels that should feel good. Put all your money on Papa's mustache because he's he's winning the race. I'll put more than all my money on that. Uh, to start um, off the top, why freaks for midnight flicks? It feels like a midnight flick. It looks like a midnight flick, and it tastes like one. Uh, but for all intents and purposes. It's highly regarded amongst critics and horror fans alike. It didn't lose money. In fact, it was somewhat of a juggernaut for its time. But I think a lot of the positive critiques of this film are made in hindsight, um, when in reality, this film truly did shock and appall audiences in nineteen in the 1930s. Um, it was banned in several countries for over three decades, and it received such backlash from the public at large that MGM actually ended up having to pull it from theaters despite people flocking to go see it. So for our criteria, which is to shine light on either forgotten films or much maligned movies, I think from a 1930s lens, this movie was, uh, was violently railed against people were really spooked by this and, and, for lack of a better term, freaked out. Uh, <laughs> and so from from that perspective is why I chose it and why it's on here. I know being a fellow freak such as myself, you've probably seen this a lot. I've seen it so many times and it's an easy movie to get through because it's only an hour. Um, but upon this past rewatch, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I love this movie. I'm actually surprised that you picked it. I think it's a. Oh, it's how, a, how come? I just, I don't know. I just didn't even think about this movie being something mm. that we would cover. Um, but I'm glad you did. And I feel that it is a very, very important movie um, in terms of how movies came after it and were influenced it by it generations later and just what its overarching social critique is within it there's so much going on with this movie i think and i i, I really realized that even more upon watching it this time because i hadn't watched it in a while yeah so yes it's a fabulous little movie and i agree i think the legacy of freaks is is almost uh, is almost more important than the film itself. Like what it what it laid the groundwork for is is extremely important from a creativity standpoint and a filmmaking standpoint. Um, and it almost is is a is larger than the film itself. Um, but I I love it unendingly and. Um, really for the three decades after it came out, you know, for the thirties, the, you know, the forties, the fifties and sixties, let's say up until the sixties, 
until there was another countercultural movement, this was not uh, this was banned and not seen by very very many people until kind of the counterculture of the '60s really reprised it and and heralded it, and then. Basically, since the 60s, this movie has been uh, applauded by by all. And uh, this idea of counterculture is a is a huge thing in the movie. And it's 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 why I personally love it. I love underdog stories. I love countercultural movies. Um, And this is one of the earliest examples of countercultural movies. Uh, And it's it still holds. I love it so much. I'm glad that you pointed out that with the the revival of counterculturalism in the 60s, you know, that led to this being reevaluated because what you implied there, and I don't know if people, many people think about this much when they look at history, but from around World War One until the 30s, there was a very, very healthy bohemian art countercultural kind of movement, especially in Europe, that was happening. So, you know, I feel like, yeah, this movie is indicative of that experimentation that was happening and revolt that was happening during that era as well. And so you saying that it got its... Do it got its comeuppance or its dues later on with the the rise in a, in a new counterculture movement, a new generation of people of that sort. I, I like that you kind of stated that more or less, which shows how ahead of it uh, ahead of its time it is as well. It just almost was like so groundbreaking and ahead of its time that people were like not ready for it, and then it had to like sit on a shelf until people were ready for it. Which is, uh, which is awesome to me, um, and it still holds today. Like we're talking about a movie that was is ninety years old as of this year. Uh, well, yeah, th- that's right. crazy, and, and that's what I mean. Though there was there during that time, things were very swinging and debauchous and in revolt yeah. as well. You know that there was that's where we get a lot of the the art movements, the antagonistic revolutionary art movements that came to influence people in the late fifties and sixties and seventies that became punk and all of this that had its beginnings in that era. Think about surrealism and Dadaism and, and all of that and movies such as this. So I like to be able to go back and, and, and point out that it wasn't like it was just all, I think people just, they, they forget that there was, um, true weirdos that existed prior (laughs) to, you know, a more, I guess, an era during this time that's more easily for us to reflect upon because we're only a few generations out. I suppose that stuff gets lost in time because most people from that era are, are gone. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and perspective is key. Um, especially when we, it comes to films where people are like, well, that isn't that scary or like, I don't watch anything. It's black and white. Like right. perspective is key. 
as to understanding uh, social fears and and the culture that was you know abundant at that time. If you put yourself in those shoes, the uh, the context of this movie is is terrifying. But I think it holds even outside of that context, regardless. Um, yeah, I agree. So the general plot description for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's uh, Freaks is set amongst this backdrop of a traveling circus and it follows a conniving trapeze artist who joins this group of sideshow performers with a plan to seduce and murder a dwarf who's uh, in the troupe to gain his inheritance. But her plot proves to have grave consequences. <laughs> um, in terms of money made and and whatnot, again, it wasn't an unsuccessful film. It was a film that was pulled early, so who knows how much money this movie would have made? It had a budget of about three hundred and ten thousand and cleared about three hundred and forty one thousand in the box office before it was shelved. So for it to have such a small run in the box office and for it to have made its money back or have broken even essentially is is a testament to to the film. Um, reviews at the time absolutely panned it, thought it was like an exploitative nightmare mess. Um, only in this retrospective hindsight cultural hindsight do we look back on this film fondly but at the time it certainly uh had its naysayers and detractors um as you can as you can imagine but now it is a beloved film i'm sure if you go on like rotten tomatoes or some bullshit it's probably a 95 percent plus rating at least um it's heralded as one of the greatest horror films of all time and one of the greatest you know films of all time so um it's come a long way baby it only took 90 (laughs) years um anything else you want to touch upon before we get into the good the bad and the questionable well i i feel we would be remiss if we didn't point out that this is a todd uh todd browning movie and he yes was tasked to helm this project hot on the heels of the success of dracula so Todd Which, Browning was that has a, its was an, own story, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he was the it director at the time, and essentially, producers said, "All right, that you had that, and that scared the pants off people. Well, we want you to deliver the next, the next thing. <clears throat> we want you to up the ante, and that's essentially the." Uh, the spirit in which this was, which was made. So I feel like that's worthy of note off the top. Todd Browning is known for two things, freaks and his bumbling of Dracula. Cause supposedly he was drunk off of his feet for all of Dracula, or at least most of it. And <laughs> right. cinematographer Carl Frond had to step in and actually is, has been given um, uncredited uh, direct, <laughs> directing uh, credit for it. So um, it's a weird, he's got a weird history and he uh, kind of went into seclusion after this and never talked about this film and never talked about his life really. So we don't know much about him, but yeah, I think 
we can't take Dracula away from him necessarily. Uh, and those are there's lots of rumors as to exactly how competent he was on the set. So at the end of the day, he did Dracula and Freaks back to back. So, I mean, you can't really take that away from him. Those are yeah. those are bangers. Um, so it is what it is, even given the, the, you know, the history of his of his alcohol abuse. Right. Um, yes. Good point. So let's get into it with the good, the bad and the questionable. A loving cup. We accept a one of us. We accept a one of us. Starting with the good. I want to start by boring the ever loving shit out of everybody and talking a little bit about film history here. Um, because I think it's important, but this is a pre-code movie. And so the good that I'm bestowing upon <laughs> this specific discussion is pre-code Hollywood cinema is fucking awesome. Um, pre-code Hollywood was like 1929 to 1934. And it was a proverbial like wild, wild west of filmmaking. There was excessive unchecked violence in movies and portrayals of prostitution and homosexuality. And then there's what freaks brings to the table. It's a level of artistic freedom that still remains sort of unprecedented in the history of filmmaking in that short, you know, five, six year gap, you know, a lot of great gangster movies, the rise of James Cagney, the best Marx brothers movie came out uh, during this period in duck soup. But Specifically, pre-code horror movies benefited the most. Listen to this list of bangers that I looked up. These are all pre-code horror movies. Freaks, obviously. You get Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, The Black Cat, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, King Kong, Dr. X, uh, Boris Karloff's Mummy. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's like horror movies in this pre-code time benefited the most and you get this huge boom in horror movies because when left unchecked horror movies seem to thrive in this this little subgenre of grotesqueness and they took advantage of it so my good to start is just pre-code hollywood and how the, it will never be duplicated again yeah i agree it really it's was, awesome. and it it goes back to what I was saying. With if people don't have the perspective to think about what was going on at this time, this era was was bananas <laughs> in terms of just culturally and and people just being complete um, um, just monsters and weirdos and just the whole shebang. Again, I, I feel because we have, um, we have this idea of, especially with us being from America and the U S that, you know, that countercultural sixties basically was 
a shattering of the moral values and and the uh, the repressions and suppressions of the forties and fifties. So we have this idea, I think, that basically up until that point, that's how it was, that everything was very conservative and stayed, and it wasn't. That we had, we've had these these little eras where things were unhinged, and it's to me not coincidental that when you have those kind of upticks or these wellsprings and surges of transgressive, bohemian, uh, highly individualistic, kind of anarchistic activities and personifications and characteristics becoming more and more predominant in society. It's no coincidence that they are always immediately tamped down with some sort of phenomenon or event or series of events that uh, counter whips the other way. Like this is a, you know, this isn't just a coincidence. This is an actual historical thing that happens. It's a dialectic that happens throughout history where if you let people kind of do their thing and be who they want to be and while out <laughs> and try to reach for their own individual potentials and thereby also trying to reach for a greater human potential, the people that run the world, the ruling class, will always backlash against it. And consequently, consequently, that's where you'll get, you know, very, very disastrous economic policies or disastrous, you know, geopolitical policies and events. That's why you, you'll have these rising of strongmen and things like that. These aren't coincidences. These are the ruling class counterwhipping against people trying to, I guess, level up. Um, I guess the, uh, when I say people, obviously, you know, anybody that's not the ruling class or whatever, but they're trying to level up and trying to, you know, burst out, uh, be the most Promethean that they can. Anyways, so yes, like you were saying, like all this stuff before the, you know, the Hayes Code and before the Depression really sunk everything and World War II, you have this just banquet, this cornucopia of very strange, unhinged movies because of that. It's great. Yeah. And I, I urge people to to look up or seek out pre-code Hollywood movies because it's it's almost a uh, – we, we are able to make films today with the utmost excessive violence and nudity and, and whatnot. Um, so comparatively, we think we have it, you know, better now. But that's not necessarily true. This is right. – we're talking about a period of filmmaking with – unchecked artistic creativity and mm -hmm. and that goes a long way in in a, in freedom and 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 getting really cool and diverse films rather than a 400th goddamn marvel movie that we don't need because back then it wasn't about we need another we need to churn out more sequels to keep making money this little period of time really was was a creative boom um, and that will never be duplicated again. So if we haven't lost everybody with really <laughs> dry 
film history, uh, I'd, I'd like to s- start as well by talking with Freaks functions as a conversation piece or like a debate film. It's while you're watching it, it's like, is it exploitative or is it the highest form of inclusivity? Is it amoral or does it in fact have a profound degree of morality to offer viewers? The ability to get people talking is what a, a, this film from 1932 still being relevant 90 years later and still talking and having this debate of morality and exploitation is why this film has legs. It, whether it, it doesn't matter where you fall on on the debate. Like I, I don't necessarily have a strong opinion myself. I think parts of it are exploitative, but I also agree with this idea that this is very inclusive in terms of portraying people with disabilities, people with deformities, people that are the other in society. I think it yeah. gives them a platform and people had never seen that before in their lives and they wanted it to go away. <laughs> I agree. And that was and that's really, ultimately a good thing. Yes. So, and that was the thought I really had going through my head Obviously, I had before when I've seen this movie before, but that was reoccurring to me where I was thinking that the moral crux and premise of this movie in it, what I feel that Todd Browning was at least trying to portray, was actually playing out in real life as the movie was being released. Where I think that Todd Browning, because to go back to talk about Todd Browning a little bit. Yeah. Todd Browning had served time in the circus as well. Yeah. He was a circus performer. So he came from that life. He knew all about it. Todd Browning was about that life. Yeah. Those were his people. Um, So I think that it was Todd Browning's intent to show the humanity of these performers and these people that had were othered um, because of their their characteristics, making them distinctly different from everyone else, normal, quote unquote, humans, normal people, normal, you know, polite society people. And so yeah. he was just trying to show that they're just like, you know, that time honored tale. They're just like you and me. They fall in love. They like to have fun. They have sadness. They have goals, ambitions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they have their own life. They have, they all want to realize their own potential in some way. Um, and, and I think the reaction is so quintessentially liberal, a lot of ways. And it's, and it's, well, I would say certainly, especially from what I read about um, Olga, who played Cleopatra, the kind of the way that she interacted with the other cast members, to me, was very quintessentially liberal in a lot of ways. Where it it's was, a very, it's a very bleeding heart uh, right. reaction to it, which is like we must we must protect and and yes. make sure that that everybody is has a inclusive space in which to feel safe and. And no one is taken advantage of, and and right. and then on the other side of it is like these people, you know, 
want to be portrayed as anybody else. And in order to do that, you need to have them on film for the first time. And also they're given opportunities to make money that they otherwise would have never been afforded. So, you know, fucking shove it with with the fucking bleeding heart bullshit. Well, but that's what I'm saying. So you have that aspect of it and then you have the conservative reactionary aspect of it, which is, yeah, we don't want this at all. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Show we, these people <laughs> in the put darkness. the freaks into the sewer where they belong. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just and both ends them. are are hair rippingly frustrating because it's just <laughs> right. like somewhere in the middle exists a happy medium where these people can exist and profit off of of this in a healthy way that is consensual. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. At the end of and the is day, it, is empowering. It's, it's empowering. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think we land on the same end of this morality debate, but uh-huh. I love movies that can even have this debate still. I mean, sure. it's still relevant now. It's not like we have weeded this out of society. I would have liked this. I In a perfect world, this movie is irrelevant because we've weeded all of this out and there is no longer like a Star Trekian <laughs> utopia 90 years later and we no longer have these conversations because we've solved these fucking problems but unfortunately we're doomed to repeat all the same goddamn societal issues until we're all in in the fucking dirt (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately and and i think it brings us to i just want to touch upon the problem we have now because you had made mention of well now there is there's not the same sort of fettering as there was with like the postcode stuff. All that's been blown apart completely and anything can be done. But now we have this other phenomenon where none of it has any impact because of a variety of different circumstances there, you know? So you have at one point, these things did have an impact. They did have a shock value or they did have a way to kind of jar people to think about what was, you know, the unthinkable to them. Yeah. But now it's, it's, you know, call whatever you will, desensitization. I think it's more than, I, I think de- saying that we're desensitized is a very pat and in just, it's just a very, it's a low effort way of discussing why these things happen and, and they don't have the same effect. But nonetheless, that's what we're what we're dealing with now with you know this situation where you can see even more brutal representations of reality happening. And you know, it doesn't to the public at large, it doesn't get the backlash that it does. So because it has nothing to say ultimately. There's no actual message or, you know, go ahead. Right. Yes. Or I just, I feel like it's this, it's this phenomenon. I don't know how much I've mentioned um, talking about capitalist realism or things like that. Mark Fisher in particular on this podcast, but Mark Fisher and, and his ideas about capitalist realism is what to me is more the issue where it becomes a point where capitalism being the superstructure that it is just completely absorbs any sort of internal revolt to the system to the point where it has no effect. There's no recourse beyond it. People don't know how to, to uh, find chinks in the walls 
to break them down anymore. So any sort of acts of rebellion or dysfunction or whatever, it loses its potency. Essentially it's, 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 it's absorbed in the system and sold back to people. So I feel like that's an instance we're dealing with more of an instance of that, where everything that is considered taboo or rebellious or anarchistic and, and truly paradigm shifting just essentially gets absorbed in the overall structure and sold back to the people or repackaged, um, in a, you know, whatever. So that's kind of how I feel about it, but go on my friend. (laughs) Yeah. So to, uh, to double back around to the film itself, um, the film proves that our collective morbid curiosity endures. Even the most fervent opponents of this film went to go see it. Uh, right. And you as this idea as they do, because you can't, <laughs> I guess it's you like, can't talk like, shit if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah. They're doing their research or whatever. Right. But you can't look away. And in a lot of ways, people derive pleasure from this gross fascination with the taboo. And this is like taboo on parade and people yeah. ate it up for different for different purposes. They either, you know, engaged with it out of morbid, morbid curiosity or they engaged with it so they could rail against it. But no matter what, it was something it was the it movie that people had to go see before it created too much controversy and had to be pulled. Yeah, this movie it was before the idea or term exploitation film got codified. This was an this had elements of exploitation. Now defining what exploitation means means different things in different eras and to different an association to different people and films. But yes, it had that essence of it, that shock value that transcended the movie itself to kind of promote beyond the content. And that's what exploitation is. Exploitation as a genre was developed, you know, basically in the spirit of making cheap movies where the promotional aspect of it did more of the legwork than the film itself. And that's what we have into today. Most films, you go back to Marvel films or any of those, they're exploitation cinema. It's all about the merchandising and the promotion and all of that and, and about making a return on your investment. So, but this, obviously, this movie and those horror movies and whatever, they have that kernel in them that was eventually, you know, taken, it was exploited <laughs> by later directors and producers. So, yeah. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about this movie's influence and its legacy and its societal, you know, its place in, in filmmaking society and, and you know, our reaction to it in general. But can we just talk about... The wedding feast is one of my all-time favorite scenes and the cornerstone of this film. It's a showcase of all these wonderfully entertaining personalities. And it's the singular point in the film where 
the audience goes from horrified onlooker to compassionate sympathizer. This and the right. celebration is is ultimately marred by Cleo's fierce rejection of being quote unquote one of them. Um, right. But whenever I'm in the position to indoctrinate or, or peer pressure into someone uh, and if someone into joining a group in real life, I never hesitate to pull out the goobble gobble goobble gobble one of us chant. That is so <laughs> iconic and it is just like a part of my lexicon <laughs> just in yeah. general. But the wedding feast is such a awesome part of this movie and one of my favorite scenes in in horror movies. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I like that you started with talking about that and maybe we can kind of work out from that centerpiece that is this movie. Um, but yeah, but that 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 scene obviously is is legendary. Um, and one we want to talk about this having its connective tissue into later later pop culture or rebel counterculture whatever obviously the ramones <laughs> yeah their and obsession with for, pinheads and and all that <laughs> right which clearly i don't know if it was intentional I've, I've never really fully understood but you know they took the chant and repurposed it or reworded it for their own you know their own purposes yeah i, I never thought Gabba about Gabba. <laughs> yeah i I never thought about that if that is the direct influence of this of this movie or not but do you you definitely see this this idea of them clinging to counterculture and outcasts and you know this idea of the pinhead figure uh, as like adopted it almost as one of their mascots so right. yeah it's very Ramonesy for sure. Yeah. Um, to talk about the, the going back to, to actually talking about the film itself, um, I really like the Carney's opening monologue, um, and I like that as a way to start the film. I like the tearing away of the the butcher paper for the opening credits as well. Mm-hmm. I like all of these old school um, techniques of creating an effect as opposed to, you know, anything that's post or even, you know, any sort of trickery. It was just like old school vaudeville type of effects to create, you know, the desired intent for the viewer. So I really like that a lot. It's very vaudevillian because Todd Browning has a vaudeville background and a lot of these sideshow performers, um, specifically the conjoined uh, sisters, came from a, a vaudeville background. So, yeah, it's it's akin to vaudeville, um, very much so. Um, um, we'd be – go ahead. No, go ahead, my friend. We'd be remiss to obviously not talk about um, – our favorite freaks. Do you have a favorite or do you want to just talk about some of your favorites? Well, okay. So I'm glad that you said that because that was what I was getting into was I did want to bring up the, the just very unique and specific characteristics of each one of these people in this movie. 
and how so distinct each one of them are, obviously, and how you could really just focus on each one themselves and have a discussion about how, you know, how endearing they each are because all of the people, all of the, the non-normals, I'm going to call them or whatever, the freaks, they all are super endearing and super sweet. And that's, that's really, again, that's the power of this movie is if you don't sympathize and empathize with them, then you yourself are a monster. <laughs> yeah. You, are, you yourself are the monster. Yeah. I like, I like that. I, I, there's, there's a, such a large cavalcade of, in, of individuals. I, I don't want to necessarily touch upon right. all of them, but I definitely do want to touch upon the, the heavy hitters. Um, right. Specifically, and first and foremost, Schlitzy, who single-handedly <laughs> is winning over hearts and minds left and right uh, with this performance. And, you know, for, for people that don't know, Schlitzy is actually a male uh, yeah. <laughs> performer, even though he wears a dress. I, I was I read that that was to hide his incontinence issues. Yeah. But his aura is undeniable and his this his smile during uh the wedding feast is so infectious like and he doesn't have a one stitch of dialogue in the entire movie and he just he wins me over every time i watch this he's he is the the standout um first and foremost and the only other one I, I really want to talk about in terms of it, sheer impressiveness is Prince Ra- uh, Prince Randy and AKA the yeah. living torso, AKA the human worm, um, pulling a match out and lighting his cigarette with his, with his mouth is such a feat that I can't even wrap my head around. And what wasn't even shown in that scene is that he rolled his own cigarette before lighting it all with his mouth. Like he is in terms of pure impressiveness, the standout of, of the film. If there was a miscongeniality of freaks though, it would go to Schlitzy, Mr. Congeniality, I suppose I should say. Uh, Schlitzy wins the, the congeniality performance of this though. He's, he's unendingly uh, uh, adoring in this. Who are some of your favorites? Well, <clears throat> we would be remiss not to talk about them. And <clears throat> I will say this as a caveat, and, and this is kind of jumping the gun a little bit, um, because I don't necessarily think that this was all their fault. But I do genuinely love Hans and Frida. I think that their acting portrayal in this is a little um, constrained. And that is it's because they, it's just this is brother, bad. Yeah, they're brother and sister. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that they had their own constraints because of that. But also, you know, honestly, there probably was a lack of actual chops, acting skills, maybe, you know, uh, to, to blame a bit. But how shall I say this? I, and I, I don't want to make the mistake of whatever fetishizing them but i do think that they are genuinely adorable people <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say adorable when talking about dwarf performers but right but i understand what but, you're saying 
but because they have this childlike aspect to them um, in the way that they talk and their mannerisms, I do think that they are very cute. <laughs> and I know that's probably not what I'm supposed to say, but I do. You feel heard it here way. first. He wants to <laughs> pull up their shirts and, and slap them on the belly and put, pick them up and put them in his pocket. <laughs> exactly. I just want to tuck them right in there. <laughs> little, little nuggets that they are. Those little nuggets. Um, but yeah, so, but as far as their performance in, in the movie, it's it's a little bit uh, to, to be desired. Um, the Siamese twins, I want to talk about them specifically because I love this bit that has started and... <clears throat> gets referenced in Mr. Show and one another skit in Mr. Show that uh, I, I like to talk about Mr. Show a lot. We talk about uh, Seinfeld and we make those references and I tend to do it with Mr. Show because I'm more familiar with it with, than you are. But this idea of the Siamese twins li- living essentially their own independent lives when they're, con- they're conjoined and acting you know, like this is completely normal in the sense that we can have these independent lives, even though we're always going to be in the same room together and people that are interacting with us are going to be in the same room. So, you know, you have the love interests of the, of the twins that are acting as if they're going to meet them at separate occasions at a different place. (laughs) Whereas, (laughs) They're always going to be together. It's just this, this distinction that they make mentally. And Mr. Show had a skit like that where it was these conjoined twins that grew up completely different from one another. One was the rebel and like the the Hesher and the other guy was the, the one that had his shit together and became a lawyer and went to the military. And so the, the whole crux of the skit is they, they go through life being complete opposite individuals <laughs> and being able to maintain their own individual characteristics and personality. But I like that whole bit that's also, you know, being discussed essentially in this movie as well. Yeah, and and the uh, what I heard was Todd Browning's idea, but when one of them gets kissed and the other one like feels the compassion of it, right. they're doing some good, uh, some good mythic work on that. Like, who knows yes. if that's actually true? Um, but yeah, I love I, I love them as, and they're probably in terms of uh, talent level, they're probably the most talented because they were like put into child slavery basically from the age of three, which is what I was reading about them. And their, their mom like forced them to learn every instrument and become this like vaudevillian act where one of them played the piano while the other one played the saxophone and all this. So they were actually very talented individuals um, that, that could do a variety of things. And they had the, the vaudevillian background. Yeah. Yeah, they're good. I mean, there's there's tons of good ones. Um, I, I think Cuckoo has like <laughs> five seconds in this thing that are just great. Just wearing yeah. those those goggles and, and looking insane. I think <laughs> the 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 one that is so weird. I I don't want to say weird necessarily, but the stork woman, or I think she's also called the bird girl, actually right. had no. 
um, disability or deformity whatsoever. She was just a an odd looking woman with like this large, long nose and this thin bone structure that like made her appear to be bird like. But she had was have a normal intelligence and and they cut her hair to look to look like that and to like accentuate the bird like features in her face. But for all intents and purposes, and there's a term for this in 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 uh, sideshow carny language or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but she did not have any sort of deformity to her credit. So <laughs> I think she's a she's a really interesting one because uh, she fits in. But at the end of the day, that's a that's a strange strange thing to just stumble upon and make as you're living. Yeah. <laughs> like if well, I'm a if I'm a person with an actual deformity or like missing limbs or whatever, like. I would rail pretty hard against somebody coming in and kind of like, you know, taking food out of my mouth, essentially. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it seems strange. A strange move. Right. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. They're, 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 she's essentially an interloper. She She'd is. be an interloper. <laughs> well, so yeah, the term funny. that I saw applied to her that I, that I can't remember was she would basically be the one outside during the ticket taking that would be like, if you think she looks weird, wait till you go inside. Like, it's yeah. like one of those, like she is kind of weird looking and she's just like a, a little appetizer of sorts as right. to the freakdom that exists inside the tent. <laughs> So, but <laughs> yeah, it's weird. weird. Um, I do want to discuss Olga Baklanova as Cleopatra because I think she does a phenomenal job as being the the villainess in this movie. Yeah, she's wonderful. She really, she really, there is a kind of almost a hamminess to it, but you're all in for it. Cause it's so over the top with her being so, Oh, you know, just so evil. And so she's just like almost constantly <laughs> hand wringing and <laughs> screaming and maniacally <laughs> laughing. Like she is like full on, uh, yeah. Heel to borrow a wrestling term. Yeah. She's total, she's a total heel and she just is openly, obviously mocking Hans throughout the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you got to get and, you know, going back to the wedding feast, that is where everyone turns, because when she throws right. the champagne um, and, you know, you're all a bunch of no good freaks, uh, then you're then that's when you know that the shit is about to go down. Like that is the that is the moment. And she sells yeah. it so well that you want her. You want ill to come to her <laughs> and it does right and yeah and just that is another discussion about how fundamentally these people who have been through the worst this is this is actually a common theme i see in general in the world we talk about maybe certain societies or nations or ethnicities that have been plagued and beleaguered with whatever the worst that especially U S or Euro imperialism has beset upon them. We talk about what would be considered third world or developing nations. Um, 
you go to places like that and you if you are mingling or or hanging out with any of the indigenous people i feel that by and large they're very they're trying they're essentially trying to be very buoyant and and people that appreciate and try to be full of life and accepting of um i guess the bounty of what little they have it's when you get into places like that are more i guess um that have more material wealth is where you have this kind of this the the all the ills that come with like you know being i guess I'm fucking up here, but I'm, I'm really trying to describe the fact that people that seem to have less and seem to be the most disadvantaged try to be the most happy and 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 accepting of what they have and the warm warm hearted. But everybody has a breaking point. Like that's what the, it's trying to show here is these people they they all love each other and they have a community and they're doing their best to make their life worth something. And then you have a woman who has it all essentially. And she's the most conniving, evil, just, you know, piece of shit or whatever. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm doing a terrible, terrible job of having this discussion right now, but. Yeah. The freaks were given a shitty hand. And in a lot of, in a lot of ways, they have the shiniest, disposition in the film yes. and it's almost like the Thank have you. nots uh have a better outlook on life than the haves do and the haves are only wanting more as to cleo's scheme to you know get his to get hans's inheritance money she's only wanting more and she's taking from people who are already given a shitty hand and they're right. content with their living situation so it's a real right. disparity between this haves and have nots um and i think they do a great job of it and and it villainizes one and you know it, it the other group is righteous in their just ability to exist <laughs> well, but also righteous in their final indignation and vengeance yeah, and, upon and, they're, because, and they reached a breaking point yeah yeah because all they just want to be left alone essentially they just want to have a happy healthy life once again that is a theme where you know you're doing the best you can with what you got you have to have that mentality when you have no control over the crushing circumstances that have created your world to be less ha- have less social mobility or less you know ability to reap the rewards of the world that people that are given everything or handed everything or or born into more prosperity or whatever and I, I I feel like this is a theme within a theme here that also reflects on our larger society. So absolutely. Yeah. So what, um, you were talking about, you want to know if there was any other good. And what I mentioned was we need to at least discuss that third act because what happens with that is that's where this movie flips. Now we'll go back and, and, and point out again that 
the the wedding scene is the center point where it's it's the 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 apex of the plot essentially and the tenor of the movie clearly changes at that point but i feel like at this third act this is where it goes from being there's a disturbance clearly and the jig is up for cleopatra to this outright turns into a nightmare <laughs> and that whole third act where the cavalcade the 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 circus troupe the the horse drawn cavalcade is being driven through the rain and mud truly is terrifying <laughs> i don't think i the first time i watched this honestly probably as a teenager uh i don't think i had prepared myself for how frighteningly it was it was going to turn out i i didn't expect something from 1932 to be to have such a a terrifying edge to it but it is when they are swarming um one of my favorites favorite shots is prince randy and with the knife uh between his between his lips i don't know what he's gonna do with that thing um but that's awesome i love seeing him wiggle his way under the under the wagon but yeah to see them swarming and then the final shot of what they have turned cleo into is is shocking and and horrifying it is it's it's wonderful and it is what makes this a horror movie ultimately you like almost forget that you're watching a horror movie but there's consequences to shitty actions in horror movies and she gets her comeuppance and it's great and you 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 love to see it it is seared in your brain and from the moment that i saw it yeah the, the prince randian wiggle worm through the mud yeah. it <laughs> i i could see it clear as day from that moment on and 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 yes finally seeing cleopatra as the as the mutilated freak that she became the bird the bird woman the bird girl Human, human, human duck, duck, whatever. Because we already have a, a yeah, a pit or a, a bird lady. Lots and lots of bird stuff in this. Everyone's called like the bird girl or like because even um, uh, I think it's either Cleopatra or or the other blonde flapper looking girl, Venus. Um, it, their nickname is like yeah, Venus. One of them is the the peacock of the. Of the fjord or whatever the fuck I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, lots of lots of bird nicknames. I don't know why. Yes. So we had to have that discussion about about no, about that whole I last agree. part of it because that's where this movie again it goes from being yes, it's un it it can obviously make people unnerved and uncomfortable in their seat and maybe squirm a little bit if they're not used to seeing folks like this, or they're not willing to accept them, um, to outright, you're not going to be able to sleep after you see this. So anyways, and that was my takeaway from when I first saw it was, it was just, uh, what? (laughs) So, yeah. And her, her like revulsion and rejection of, 
of what ultimately is is them accepting her and you know gobble gobble one of us one of us like they were celebrating her being a part of their little family and she rejected violently, them and violently so, and hatefully violently yes. and so their only recourse was to make her a permanent member of their family. And, you know, I think that there's also a morality debate there that we don't need to get into, but I, I like how dark that that idea is. Yes, I agree. Um, so, yes, we can move on from here if you have anything else to add. So, the bad. <laughs> Top of the list, Top of the Pops, um... Hans is such a shitty partner. The film is so captivating at times that you forget that he's engaged to Frida this whole time. He's flaunting this betrayal and this infidelity in her face, which also happens to be her place of work. So it's like inescapable for her. She's clearly in ruins over this. And I think of the wedding feast because I think it was smart to have the champagne thrown in the face of Angelino. Because if it's thrown in the face of Hans, I don't feel as much remorse. Because I, I do feel for Frida here, and it, it makes me yeah. sad that he would treat her this way. Um, so I think Hans is an, an all-time shitty partner I here. I really agree. He really, he really bungles us up. It's funny because the way – until you – get to that final tacked on scene because for those of you that don't know the final scene where Venus and uh, Frozo come to visit Hans with Frida that was added later because the movie was supposed to have just a bleak ending but the the studio yeah. wanted to have more levity to it a happy ending so they added but <clears throat> honestly if they wouldn't have added that, there gets to a point where you think that, or at least I had this thought that Hans was kind of conniving the whole time, though. Um, there is a part where you feel almost like Hans is on to Cleopatra the whole time, and he he thinks he she's a he knows that she's shitty. That he almost he yeah. is the one that wants to play the long game with her. <laughs> and then get his revenge for her being this shitty, you know, interloper into their circle and trying to take advantage of him and, and his his folk. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also in my bad. It's the the alternate ending that never was. There's like three versions, basically. It, the version in which uh Cleo is the is the human duck with the epilogue of um, Hans being uh, consoled by Frida, uh, and then there's the ending where it's the human duck cut to credits, which is brutal. But then there's a third ending, which is in my bad because it's so great. I wish this existed on film. Um, but in, the, in this third conceptualization, when Cleo is being pursued by the freaks at the end of the film, she stops to glance back at them and a bolt of lightning hits a tree that's 
that's nearby and collapses on top of her, effectively crushing her legs as the freaks like swarm on top of her. But also Hercules is castrated um, and which creates this new sideshow act where Hercules is made to sing in a falsetto while Cleo has been turned into this human duck who squawks along to Hercules' song. What a brutal ending that would have been. And yes, I am filled with remorse that we didn't get that ending. (laughs) Filled with rage. Rage and remorse, exactly. (laughs) Um, Other bad, we already kind of talked about this, but I give it with caveats is the the delivery of Hans and Frida is is not the best. They're not comparatively to the, the rest of the cast who are really they they come off as natural in their roles and they're very great at delivering their roles, be it just because that's how they are, i.e. the pinheads, or you have some just raw talent there because you have people that have been involved in theater and acting up to that point in varying degrees them being in the lead roles they don't but they don't deliver but i again i say well maybe it was just because because they were brother and sister they had a hard time kind of bringing out more in the roles who knows yeah I don't even add that caveat. I think they're both awful. Um, period. Hard stop. Uh, it's not like they're made to be extremely affectionate in this because uh, Hans is busy, you know, right. cheating on her the whole time. And they're bad in scenes outside of when they interact with one another. So I don't know what the excuse is there. You know, they're bad when Hans is interacting with Cleo and Cleo is like acting circles around sure. him. You're right. <laughs> like, they're not great. They're not great. And Hans specifically was like in the lollipop guild in the Wizard yeah. of Oz. So like I'm sure he's not used to like leading man stuff. Right. He's like background dwarf actor. So yeah, he there was a lot asked of him and her. And so I don't put it all on them, but they weren't yeah. great. I think to tack on... I think it's a bad plan. We always talk about bad plans. Bad plan by Cleo. Can we be just a little more discreet when we're trying to poison right. a dude? Yes. Like, goddamn, just close the door. Yeah. Like, geez, Louise. But that also shows more of her hubris throughout this. Where she, yes, yeah. You know, That's she's true. just like, what? What's what? What is gonna? What's gonna happen? What are they going to do about these it? dumb freaks? Yeah, these dumb she, freaks will never catch she me. Just she's flaunting it the whole time. So. Yeah. Questionable questions. Well, main one I have is I think it's funny, and this is clearly of a bygone era in terms of our perceptions, our 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 perceptions of body types and physiques. But I think it's funny uh, that. Hercules is the strong man of the circus when by our standards and even by standards, then I feel he's just a tall, scrawny guy that's oiled up. I think the 1930s, uh, especially like going back that far. Yeah. Like we're used to again, to, bar- to use a, use a term super freaks in terms of 
Arnold and, and people who have really chiseled their body out of stone. Uh, yeah, the idea of a strong man back then was a lot different, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just super funny to me. Well, in this movie also, I'm I'm wagering it's, it's trying to portray an even more bygone era at that point because they're all in horse-drawn buggies and carriages yeah. that it's not even supposed to be of the time. It's supposed to be of a previous time. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So That's there's, true. We're there's like that as being a, a questionable. Bi- a bi- yeah. Go ahead. It's, I was just going to say that's a questionable choice of, of casting in terms of I, the actor that plays Hans, whatever, Henry Victor, I think his name. He does a good job. He, he, he does. He does an acceptable, you mean, you mean, uh, job. you mean, you mean Hercules? Yeah, that's what I said. What did I, what did it sound like I said? He's, well, you said Hans. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, Hercules, that's what I meant. I was yeah. like, we just went over this. He did a bad job, Adam. No, Jeez. I, I thought, <laughs> yeah, Henry Victor that played Hercules, he does a serviceable job. But as far as casting for what I would consider a strong man, they could have. In fact, it's funny. I was thinking about this. It was a different member of the troupe, and I, I'm not really sure who it was, but they – they have ha- uh, or, uh, Hercules, or I almost said it again, Hercules and this other member of the circus troop side by side. And the other guy is way beefier than, than Hercules is. And I just thought, well, why isn't he the strong man? This dude could clearly, clearly probably pound the shit out of Hercules. It? I can't remember. He's, it's right. Remember the scene when they're, they're all sitting around playing cards and they're just jibing yeah. Hans. Um, yeah, those one, two were, um, no, they're dry. They're, they're talking to, uh, the human skeleton, I think. Right. When they're playing, well, there, is a, there is a point where they talk to the human skeleton. Well, no, 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 that's no, that's mm-hmm. later. That's actually later. I think, because that's after, cause they indicate that the human skeleton is married to the bearded woman and they're, they're having a child. So the human skeleton's handing out cigars Point being, there's there was beefier guys playing different roles than the strong man. Yeah. Um. Also, I know that Frida, she has the characteristics of dwarfism, but comparatively to Han, she's almost she's like a full grown woman. <laughs> she could she could hand Hans's ass. <laughs> really, if it came down to it. And should have. And should have. She should not have. The, the epilogue is infuriating because it's like, why is she sticking around? I mean, she's just loyal. She, Frida is loyal. Yeah. She's, uh, once again, of a bygone era. The the, the, yeah. the loyal woman to absolutely every fault. So. <laughs> the only other question that I wanted to throw out there um, I was thinking of this, and so you can add or or subtract from my list as you see fit. But what is your Mount Rushmore of counterculture films? Um, I came up with this. I think Freaks would be on my Mount Rushmore. Um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. You could pretty much pick any Melvin Van Peebles movie, but Sweet Sweetback's my favorite of his. Clockwork Orange 
And even though I'm not like a huge fan, I love Dennis Hopper. So, and I have to throw Easy Rider on there. So, Freaks, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Clockwork Orange, and Easy Rider would be my Mount Rushmore of counterculturalism in film. What would you add or or subtract from that? I'm my brain's not working well enough to be able to come up with this right now. <laughs> those are those no are worries. those are all I, fine fine inductees. Yes, I would I would agree with all of those. I did it off the cuff for you, so thank you. I had time to think about this. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I I think that is a testament to how important this movie is to countercultural figures. So. It really is a uh, the flag bearer for the for the rejected. I feel like in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Me one of you. Well, you. Well, what are you going to do? What are you, a man or a baby? Please, please, you make me ashamed. Ashamed, you. Oh, holy jumping Christmas. What must I do? Must I play games with you? Must Mama take your horsey back ride? <laughs> That's it. Horsey back ride. <laughs> come, come, my little flies back. Mama is going to take your horsey back ride. <laughs> So let's hand out some awards here. Um, the David Mendenhall Award, which goes to the worst performance in the film. Is, I mean, we're just going to give it to my man Hans, right? Right. We've already discussed this at, at length at this point. Harry Earls. Say his name. <laughs> Say it loud. <laughs> the Frank Booth Award, which goes to the character who best belongs in a David Lynch movie. This is a good rife category. Um, the entire cast almost i said prince randian because i could see prince randian really doing some nightmare work in some of his movies yes i'll go with that too you prince, prince oh, Rand- okay good well i just, just yes i agree with you prince randian is the most um <laughs> i i don't know i don't i don't want to double down on uh saying things that i shouldn't be saying but he he to me is the f- most freakish of the freaks in a lot of ways. <laughs> king freak. So yeah, he's got big big king freak energy. <laughs> the EG Daily Secret Admirer Award, uh, which goes to the biggest on-screen crush, which all season has gone to either underage performers or people portraying underage characters, and now we're asked which <laughs> uh, person with a disability would you fuck. Um, so what <laughs> pick you're choosing here. They don't all have dis- they don't all have visible disabilities though. So No, yeah. but I get you I get, you could pick Cleo if you want, but that's almost worse than picking someone I, with a disability. I didn't pick Cleo, yes. That would have been a possibility. I don't know, Venus Venus is a kind hearted, well meaning woman, a a a healthy Young, spry woman. So I just went with her. Sure. 
I went with Schlitzie because <laughs> he's great, and I I do love him, and I have a yes. a crush on Schlitzie every time I watch this movie. But like you pointed out, this doesn't have to be a sexualized category. Right. Exactly. Um, I think Schlitzie is my on screen crush. Uh, he's great, and um, he's a he's a sideshow lifer. Uh, this was his life before and after this film. Yeah. Um, he did like a magic act. I read that had people in stitches because they loved they loved it so much. Yeah. Welcome to Primetime Bitch Award goes to the best one liner. I mean, unless you have something else, the Google Gobble Google Gobble one of us one of us is the line of the movie for me, at least the most memorable. It is, but one that gets an outright chuckle for me is when the the man woman walks by Roscoe and Frozo and kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. is sashaying and one half gives a nod to Frozo and then the other half kind of, I guess, walks away, like rejects Frozo's advances and uh, Roscoe says, I think that she likes you, but he don't. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. And we haven't even, we didn't even mention, I don't even know if hermaphrodite is even a PC term at this point it's anymore. Not. But that's what they were intersexed. billed as back then. I think it's intersex is what, what is mm-hmm. the appropriate phrase at the moment. Um, also, speaking of the the man woman, there is a a point where you'll recall where Hans calculatedly hits the man half of that individual as to not yeah. be <laughs> uncouth, I suppose. Well, he didn't want to. Yeah, he didn't want to be rude. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The uh, wiki wormhole. Um, Starting off with our body count, uh, three weeks running. I don't know what's wrong with us. No deaths um, in this movie. No deaths in the past two movies. We're three weeks dry on deaths here. Um, well, so it doesn't outright say one way or the other if uh, goddamn Hercules isn't dead. He does get stabbed. And left in the mud. Yeah, but if the alternate ending is him being castrated sure. and left to be a freak, I, it, it's of my understanding that he was not meant to die. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, zero, really, <laughs> on-screen deaths, because we don't know. That's not even a death, really. We're left to wonder. Yeah. Um, okay. This is one of Guillermo del Toro's personal favorite films, and you can actually kind of see it in uh, his choice of filmmaking. Um, Nothing, no specific nods come to mind, but uh, you can tell that this is in in his wheelhouse for sure. Uh, We already mentioned this, but the on-screen romance between Hans and Frida was very subdued because the roles were being played by real-life brother and sister Harry Earls and Daisy Earls. Mm Mm-hmm. Although production chief Irving Thalberg decided to recut the picture immediately after the disastrous test screening, it could not cancel the world premiere on January 28, 1932 at the 3,000-seat Fox Theater in San Diego. 
this is the only venue at which the uncut 90-minute version of Freaks is known to have played. Ironically, the unexpurgated Freaks was a major box office success. Crowds lined up around the block to see the picture, which broke the theater's house record. By the end of the run, word had spread that Freaks was about to be butchered and the theater advertised your last opportunity to see <laughs> Freaks in its uncensored form. Yeah. What a lucky 3,000 to have seen the the only version of this film that exists and it, we don't even have a cut of it for some reason. Right. I love it. In the United States, this film was banned in a number of states and cities. Although no longer in force, some of the laws were never officially repealed. Therefore, it is still technically illegal for this film to be shown in some areas of the U.S. So that's interesting. I know. And Cast I, member. I, yeah. I, I wanted to interject. I would. I thought it would be a funny sort of promotional kind of little job to do where you find out where in this country that that movie is still banned and find a theater, some sort of local, tiny, whatever, independent theater to show this movie, but lean into that, that this movie is still illegal here. <laughs> that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. I, I'm sure you could track down the cities in which this is banned and was never repealed. That'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Cast member Olga Roderick, uh, who played the bearded lady, later denounced the film and regretted her involvement in it. She's one of the only cast members who who later went on to to really hate that she had any participation in it. Although Roderick was the most vocal in her dislike of the movie, many of the freaks um, expressed their disdain. Only Johnny X seemed to have praised the film throughout his life. So I'm not I'm not sure. I haven't read anything else uh, to corroborate that the other freak, quote unquote, freaks were displeased by this. I know that Johnny Eck, the half man, um, was very proud to be in this. And I know that Olga was one of the most vocal uh, detractors of the film. But I, I this fact is saying that the other freaks expressed their disdain. I I've read other things to the contrary that I actually believe that a lot of the other quote unquote freaks leaned into their roles and became very like Hollywood. Like a lot right. of them were seen walking around with like sunglasses on yes. and like, where's <laughs> my chair and all that. So I, I actually have to go against this, this factoid a little bit. I know that Olga and typically for whatever reason, bearded ladies in sideshows are always very fucking grumpy for some reason. Um, <laughs> So it's not a shock that that she didn't want to be in this movie or regrets being in it. So, yeah, a, a little a little tweak there. <laughs> Todd Browning's career never recovered from the disastrous initial release of Freaks. From then on, MGM put him on a very tight creative leash uh, because the code yeah. uh, was in was in place at that point. Of his subsequent films, only The Devil Doll from 1936 has some of the spirit of his earlier work, but it is marred by a com compromised script and a weak ending. Browning retired in 1939, spent the rest of his life in complete seclusion until his death. Really weird. I think he, Todd Browning specifically, just never made the transition from silent movies to talkies. Like, it, it, you can tell in this, there is some discrepancy with like how to direct 
actors who are talking and he and him struggling with it. Um, so it's interesting. I, I think just some people could not make the leap and he is one of them, but also his creative handcuffing probably didn't help at all. Yeah. Finally, this is my favorite little piece. Dwarf actor Angelo Rosito, who appeared in this as uh, Angelino, would go on to a very successful career in movies. He would act in uh, three Bela Lugosi movies, uh, Spooks Run Wild, The Corpse Vanishes, and Scared to Death, of which I've only seen The, the Corpse Vanishes. Um, Angelo was also in TV and films, including Little Mo in the Robert Blake TV series, uh, Beretta, 1975, and as... The Master, opposite Mel right. Gibson in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> what a career. If you see him in this, can you even conceptualize that he would have lived to have even been in Beyond Thunderdome, a movie from 1985? That's hard to even wrap your head around. It is wild, but it was really only about 50 years after. So... If he was a young man, which he was at the time, you know, in his twenties, it's not. It's not completely. I'm just giving. But yes, it does seem strange. Giving, I know what you're saying. Well, first of all, little people don't live very long. Second of all, people from the 30s don't live very long. <laughs> and this is a an individual who just happened to be in show business, which is a rough gig. Yeah. In terms of you're putting your body through lots of abuse. Um, it's crazy that he lived into his 80s. It's it's nuts. No, it um, is. It is it's really uh, something to think about. And just to think about that he essentially bookended his long career with such a distinctive role as well with Master. And it's funny. I saw I so I watched like this special features on on the copy of Freaks that I have, and it's there's this wonderful documentary with this his, this historic film historian who goes into actually having interviewed um, uh, interviewed him about his life, and uh, he he said, you know, I'm best known for the beginning of my career having champagne thrown in my face, and then ending my career covered in pig shit. Um, because obviously of that that scene in, in Mad Max and he's like, but it, you know, if it's work, you got to get it. So <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like, you know, a pretty, pretty, you know, entertaining individual. Yeah, it sounds like a, he had a really great a fun sense, interview. Yeah, great sense of humor. I love it. Yeah. Anything that you would bestow upon this uh, trivia section? No, those were all points that I would have brought up as well. So bravo my friend bravo mm. we're chef's kiss we're here at the finish line so let's hand out a rating here um we need to come up with some sort of iconography uh out of <laughs> i don't know out of five schlitzies. human torsos out schlitzies out of five schlitzies yeah out of five I think there might schlitzies I think there might be a Schlitzy, uh, a Schlitzy award for next season. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we might uh, for the most in- endearing uh, character in a in a movie. Um, yeah, five Schlitzies. How many Schlitzies do you give this? It's another one because I know we've said we're trying to be restrained. I do love this movie a lot. I'll give it a four and a half. <laughs> 
Yeah, I struggling to show restraint here. Um, I think if we were given the version where Hercules is castrated uh, and and Cleo's legs are crushed with, by a fallen tree and the brutality of that ending, that's a five. But I'm I'll give I'll, I'm right there with you. Four and a half schlitzies for for this. Um, what what a fantastic movie, though. Yeah. All right. So the next uh, order of business, what is on uh, the docket for next week's episode? Well, in terms of chronologically, I do have this movie fairly down the list, but there's some circumstances occurring uh, currently that I feel the universe is speaking to me to bring this one to the table right now. And I think it would be a fine follow-up to this movie as we move forward into the future uh, cinematically. But next week, we're going to talk about Herschel Gordon Lewis's 2000 Maniacs. Oh, wonderful. What a wonderful good time. That'll be. It's going to be a real hootenanny. In more ways than one. I know this this might piss a lot of people off, but I love 2001 Maniacs too with uh, <laughs> with Robert England. I think it's kind of fun and stupid as fuck, but I obviously love the original as well. So yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to blast forward 30 years, and we're gonna we're gonna pay a visit for the first time to the Wizard of Gore himself, my main man. H.G. Lewis. Which is funny because we talked about Freaks coming out in 1932 and not getting reprised until the 60s of another resurgence of counterculture. And uh, 2000 Maniacs being 1964 is right in the middle of that resurgence of counterculture. So right. it really piggybacks nicely off of Freaks. That, that's why I moved it up into the queue in terms of what I wanted to view. I feel it's an appropriate time to have this discussion right now. So there we go. Yeah, great. I'm excited. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music is brought to you by a little band from Queens, New York, by the name of The Ramones, with their hit single, Pinhead. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram or TikTok, respectively, at midnightflixpod. For Adam Walker, I'm Pat Mitchell. See you on the other side. Google Gabble, Google Gabble, Google Gabble, Google Gabble.